Welcome to another episode of Sustainable Goat. I'm Steve Cassingham, and I interview the greatest of all time in sustainability from the past, present, and into the future. In this episode, we talk with Derek Hansen, CEO and founder of Mint Systems. Mint Systems is building what they call the new energy future. Taking the mid-sized commercial real estate segment, which is traditionally the most dirty, and optimizing everything from the building structure and design to the use of energy to make these buildings truly sustainable and profitable. We talk deeply about a lot of concepts from the challenges of entrepreneurship, power grids, and the future of how we store and distribute our energy. Derek's story is definitely one to listen to as he is truly an amazing human. So let's dive right in. I figured let's just start with a little bit about your history and just, you know, who you are, where are you originally from and kind of what's your, what's your story from when you were, when you were a little guy? You know, I grew up here in Santa Cruz and I grew up in an entrepreneurial family where my dad had, had grown up in LA. I met my mom in LA and she was originally from New York and had moved to LA in high school. And, you know, so they lived the LA lifestyle for a while, but after, you know, some time they got kind of disillusioned with, you know, the rat race kind of vibe that that was going on around them. They were, they were kind of hippies, you know, beach bum hippies. And (laughs) my dad's a very much a free spirit. He was always kind of a, a, you know, business development sales guy. And, and so, you know, he was kind of lived in the, with the idea that, you know, he could create his own, his own future, his own income. And so he, um, getting kind of tired of LA. They, I was born down there. And so I was about a year old and they had made some trips before I was born up, up the coast and had checked on, you know, check things out. And at the time, you know, this is 1976, Santa Cruz was just this little sleepy beach town, really, you know, not, not much going on. It, you know, it was just a really cool, funky vibe that kind of fit their, their aesthetic, you know, as these, uh, you know, free spirited kind of, you know, coming out of the sixties hippies kind of, you know, folks. And, so, you know, he bought a little fishing boat, bought a little house, uh, decided that he was just going to, you know, figure it out. And he started a business that was in aftermarket glazing technologies, basically coatings for glass that, uh, that reduce solar heat gain and UV and, you know, things like that. Yeah, very interesting. Was that, was that a thing back then? Like It was, it was, it was, it was it, believe it or not, and, and I've told my dad this, it, it, at the time, it was this, it was this kind of resin-based coating that you floated over the, the, the glass and it dried and it had this extremely effective kind of, you know, solar rejection properties. Uh, but, you know, if a fly landed on it while it was drying, it was, the whole thing was, you know, bad, right? And so, uh, you know, later on, these much more sophisticated technologies came out um, that were more of a laminate kind of thing. But he saw it as a niche, you know, and he saw it as a, a, you know, the story goes that he was downtown Santa Cruz just kind of walking around and he watched this guy doing it and the guy was just blowing it, right? He was just messing everything up and he goes, hey, you know what, uh, you know, I think I can help you and, you know, do you need a partner? And so he partnered with this guy and my dad being a sales guy went out and started developing the market with this guy as he learned the process and, and got better and better and eventually bought the guy out and found his own new partner. And so I grew up around a business that was mom and pop, but uh, niche and based essentially on the fact that my dad could sell ice to Eskimos, right? And so I kind of grew up around that. Now over time, um, you know, the business matured and grew. Um, So my story goes that I was, you know, one of those kids that was um, certainly bright and, you know, and and interested in school, but just did not want to do the work and uh, would much rather be in conversation, you know, with the teacher sometimes <laughs> to, to my own, uh, you know, detriment, uh, you know, and, and with other students, but, but um, just barely made it through school, to be honest with you. And, 
I, I found in high school, um, I found art and architecture. I found out that I could get math credits for, for, for uh, architectural drafting. Uh, and so I basically stopped taking math, which was not a big deal for me, but it was uh, a way that I could do something creative and still make up the math credits. So I took architectural drafting all four years of every semester, all four years of high school. Uh, and I also found um, early on in, in high school, an art teacher who happened to be uh, a student of, of, of a pretty uh, famous artist, um, Diebenkorn, and he was his student, one of his star students, and he was a fairly well-known artist, you know, internationally himself. And, um, you know, he kind of took me under his wing. He saw that I was probably one of those kids that was going to cut class more than, than go to class. And he, he said, hey, there's this little back room here to the art class, uh, to the art um, classroom that was not much bigger than the closet. But hey, if you're going to cut class for any reason or, you know, you just need to get away for whatever, just come here. And, you know, I'll talk to the other teachers, just, just show up here and you can paint. And so I spent, you know, most of my, uh, of my high school career, you know, in that back room painting. Uh, and eventually my senior year got, a, got a, uh, an internship with one of the bigger architectural firms here in Santa Cruz, and then also got uh, accepted to CCA, which is, uh, you know, California uh, Academy of Arts and Crafts up in San Francisco, which is kind of a, a fairly prestigious uh, art school based on my portfolio, not on my grades. Long story short, parents couldn't afford the tuition at the time. You know, it was just, it was an expensive school and I, and I didn't end up going. So. Uh, went to community college uh, and um, and essentially having grown up around the entrepreneurial you know vibe and seeing and having worked for my dad over you know summers and vacations and things uh, and made some money uh, I couldn't stand sitting in school anymore and and not making money so I, I dropped out and um, decided to move to uh, to Maui during the kind of the early housing boom over there um, and and started working construction so I had studied architecture. Wow. I had worked for that architecture firm and I had seen, you know, kind of from the inside out at that architectural firm, which I thought I wanted to be an architect ultimately, that they, uh, they're just not as, it's not as creative uh, as I thought it would be, right? They're, they're kind of limited by client desire and, and code and all the other stuff. And so I said, I'm just going to go uh, try my hand at construction. So I moved to Maui and started building houses with a, a firm that my, my, one of my best friends' uh, father owned. Did that for about a year, didn't own a car, uh, barely made rent. You know, lived off other people's the fruit, stealing fruit off other people's fruit trees, and you know things like that. You know, and and uh, had a great time, just kind of living the the surf bum lifestyle and working construction. And while I'm over there, my dad comes over for a visit, and we're down at the beach one day, we're body surfing, hanging out, and uh, and he goes, "Here, come, come here and sit down." You know, and so I sit down next to him, and we start talking. He goes, "Look, you know, I've got a business. You're working for somebody else's company." And he goes, "I've got a company, and someday I've got to turn this over to somebody." And you know, how about you come work for for me? And, uh, and so I, you know, I saw the potential opportunity. And so I, I said, yes. And I kind of packed everything up and, and came back home. The cool thing is that my, my dad being the, you know, kind of old school guy that he is, uh, he made me start at the very bottom and kind of worked my way up over the years through every position. So by the time I got to a leadership role, I had worked every position in the company essentially. And so I ended up, uh, you know, after about 15 years um, uh, in, in the role of CEO for that company, and my dad was able to kind of step back uh, and I ran that company for, I think, six, seven years as, as kind of CEO. Uh, and then in that process of, of being CEO, I, I was really trying to grow the company. What I had seen is that I had to grow the company. If I was going to have the income I wanted and my parents were going to be able to retire, I was going to have to really grow the company. And so that was my goal. And at the time, 
the the energy kind of market was was kind of developing and mm-hmm. uh, prior to that it had been most of the energy big deep kind of sustainable work that was being done was being done in government facilities you know and maybe some kind of you know cl- class a campuses but uh, for the most part, it was kind of it was it was just coming online as a and as an investment strategy, uh, and so I was working for for ESCOs, what were known as ESCOs, energy services companies, which were spinoffs of you know or arms of companies like Chevron. So Chevron Energy was had their ESCO division, or Train, which is an HVAC manufacturer, had their ESCO division, which was essentially doing energy audits and then designing programs that were going to holistically reduce energy consumption on these large scale uh, facilities. In, in my case, they were shop, big shopping malls, and most of them were down in Southern California. And so we were, we were acting as a consultant on the glazing component, which they couldn't, that was kind of the nut they didn't know how to crack. They understood HVAC and they understood, you know, uh, lighting and, you know, all those kind of low hanging fruit items. But glazing was kind of a mystifier for them because all these shopping malls have this like long spine of skylight running down the middle. A lot of shopping malls have that. And these things are, you know, we're talking about a million square feet and this skylights that just run down the whole. So there was no way for them to truly optimize the cooling when there's that much solar heat gain coming right through the roof. And so we, we came in and helped uh, develop programs for them that, uh, that allowed them to truly kind of get hit that number that they were looking for. In that process, I got to see kind of behind the curtain on how those how those companies worked, what they were doing right, what they were doing wrong, uh, you know, and I learned a lot in that process. And the kind of light bulb moment for me was, hey, this is going to become the new kind of future for not just class A campuses or, you know, large shopping malls or government facilities. This has to move into mid-market commercial at some point. And, uh, and so I did a bunch of research and found that there was really not a lot of companies doing that. Long story short, um, I had been trying to grow my, my parents' company in, in, into different areas, and it was kind of almost breaking their, their model, breaking the machine, so to speak. They weren't prepared for it. Uh, the company wasn't set up for it. And essentially, my vision uh, was bigger than what that company could handle. So I ultimately resigned, left it back into uh, my, my brother had actually joined the company as well, left him kind of to, to help run things with my folks. I resigned, took, you know, sold all the property that, that I had, you know, sold a bunch of stuff and uh, kind of got a little nest egg, um, literally sold the house my, my family lived in and moved up to rented a house up in the Santa Cruz Mountains and just hunkered down and wrote a business plan, took a few months to write a business plan and start shopping for investors. And so ultimately, you know, uh, I did get the business plan written as, as looking back at it. We actually, we have it saved because it's so funny how, you know, how simplistic it is, but it was enough to capture the attention of a couple seed investors, you know, kind of angels that, that, that uh, came together to form a little bit of an investor kind of model for us. Um, very, very little capital, took a big chunk of the company, but got us enough to get us about six months of runway to get the company off the ground. Being kind of a business development guy, you know, of course I grew up around that. That's, that's who I am. I built my career basically on being a sales guy. I, uh, I said, I can do this, right? So I recruited a couple of partners, one of them being my wife. <laughs> and, you know, at the time we had two little babies that I, you know, they were, you know, three and four, uh, you know, and somehow I convinced that, you know, another buddy who was a general contractor, my intention was to be kind of vertically integrated and go out and actually deliver projects is not just develop them, but deliver them. 
and uh, we hit the ground running. And so, you know, that's kind of what, uh, you know, what got us to, to, to where we're at now, but uh, a lot of changes since then, of course, but that's, that's the backstory on how I got to where I'm at now. Um, personally, I'm, you know, obviously passionate about being a father. Uh, I love living in central California. I think it's the hotbed of technology. I think that we're, we're able to mm-hmm. kind of prove a lot of new concepts in the market here in this area. It's a very ripe environment for that. I grew up surfing. I, uh, you know, I, I've uh, been a passionate, uh, you know, practitioner of Brazilian jiu-jitsu for the last 15 years. Um, you know, I, uh, I am, you know, I spend a lot of time uh, coaching and mentoring um, young folks that are coming up in business, some of them internal, you know, in our company, and some of them just uh, as, as people have come along and asked for mentorship. I really, really enjoy doing that. For me, it's, mm-hmm. it's very rewarding to give back the same way that somebody once gave to me, so... Wow. And and just thinking about in terms of like the school structure, you know, you got to get good grades, you got to do this, you got to do that. And you've kind of proven in, in one way that passion and, and the willingness to do something that others aren't willing to do shows that you can make it. First, let me start with this. It, it turns out, and I found out late in life, I mean, it's only a few years ago that I'm dyslexic. And that, mm. and that, that answered a lot of questions around what I was struggling with in school. And I found out through a friend of mine that's a chief marketing officer for a couple of companies and went public. You know, he's a very successful guy who's dyslexic. And, you know, we were talking over dinner one night and I was, we were talking about something goofy, like how we, I get still get lost in my own hometown driving around. You know, I just, I'll get kind of lost and I'll have to ask my wife, wait, which way should I go here? And he starts asking me a series of questions. And, you know, based on my answers, he goes, dude, you're dyslexic, man. Read this book. And he gives me this book called The Dyslexic Advantage. And it was, it was truly eye-opening in that it talked about how a lot of the world changing entrepreneurs are dyslexic. Going back in history, Leonardo da Vinci is known to be a dyslexic. You know, Albert Einstein was dyslexic. All the way up through some of our most uh, prolific, you know, tech founders, uh, you know, a lot of them are dyslexic. Uh, it's just essentially the, the definition has gone from being somebody that sees letters, you know, transposed, which I don't at all, to somebody who learns a little bit differently to now the broad definition is somebody that operates a little bit more in the right hemisphere uh, than, than standard, right? We all use mm-hmm. both hemispheres, but dyslexics tend to operate mm-hmm. more from the right hemisphere, which is a little bit more of a creative kind of outside the box thinking that's more language based. It's more, you know, and less, you know, rote memory and, and kind of logic based. And so reading this book, it opened my eyes to like, you know, what are my superpowers for one? And wow, that now I understand my own history a little bit better. <laughs> Back to what I was saying, I was listening to a podcast the other day and it was, you know, it was some, you know, PhD, you know, MIT professor talking about, you know, some really brilliant concepts around genetic sequencing and, you know, whatever it was, it was, it was deep. And I'm listening to this, I'm fully engaged, I love it. And I listen to a lot of stuff like that, quantum physics, quantum mechanics, and it's all out there. You know, the internet provides it either in, you know, things you can read, um, you know, the books that are available now, just at this, you know, push of a button, as well as podcasts. And it dawned on me, like, I'm, I'm seriously considering telling my kids, hey, just get a really good through high school education, right? Like really pay attention, try to learn as much as you can. And then ultimately don't go in debt in, in going to university. Just build yourself a self-education program, which I'll help them with, right? There's, I feel like you can tailor your education based on what's available out there. If you're a different kind of learner, like I am, geez, you, could, you can get a college education, like they used to say, right out of the public library. Well, now it's just right out of the internet. You know, it's on podcasts yeah. or whatever. It's, it's available. So 
I feel like our education educational system really needs to shift and, and adapt, mm -hmm. uh, not only to different learning styles, but to the potential that we don't all have to sit in a classroom. I mean, what do you what do you think it was about architecture and art that really drew you to it originally? Was it was it the beauty of the building? Was it the shape of what you can make a skyline look like? I mean, what what was that draw for you when you were a kid? Oh, man, that's a fantastic question. I, I tell you that it's I, I think first and foremost all the above, right? But certainly it's the freedom and creativity. You know, I was always a fan of, like many architects of Frank Lloyd Wright, but I'm not a huge fan of his building. Like I don't really passionately love his, his design. Like it's, that's not the case. It's that he was willing to take uh, a current paradigm and completely shift it. Like he was willing mm -hmm. to go out on a limb and say, what you think it should be, it's not, right? It should be something else mm -hmm. and, uh, or it could be something else. And so I think it was the freedom of expression and creativity in and around hard, tangible objects, right? So for me, I wish I could spin the camera around. I've got some of my own art up in the walls here in my office, but that thing lives. It sits there. It's something that was creative, that had no boundaries, but it sits there and lives for however long it lasts, right? A building is the same thing. It can be read as, you know, the thinking around what our structures are like, what, how we inhabit the buildings that we're in, how they function for us can all be rethought and reconsidered. And um, that's what I think was really, for me, I'm all about paradigm shift. I, if I really look mm -hmm. with some introspect and say like, what drives me, what motivates me, it's not really even the thing I'm doing, which is certainly I'm very committed to and is, is very important to society at this point. Uh, but, but it's more about shifting consciousness. It's more about shifting the paradigm of thinking uh, around a given subject. And did that feel... Did that feel kind of easy for you in a way? Like it's, it's like, do you just kind of walk around and you're just like, wow, that should be shifted. That should be shifted. And at a certain point, like part of the challenge when you're so creatively stimulated by the world around you, it can almost feel overwhelming because you're like, there are so many things that you can shift and fix and do, but eventually you kind of focus in on one of them. I just think that through your story, it kind of, you kind of naturally fell into what you're doing but you had a passion for it. Did you ever struggle with that? Like the idea of like so many things? I can get passionate about a lot of things. You know, there was a time where I, I had been, you know, kind of recruited by a friend of mine who was starting a very large um, sales organization. And, you know, so he, he, based on how I taught and the way I coached and, and some of my experience, he asked me to come lead some of these, you know, coaching um, essentially trainings for like, you know, hundreds of people. Uh, and I got really, really passionate on how to build a program that reached people where they were and helped turn people who had some intention to become a salesperson into really being good at it based on some of the fundamental principles that I had developed over time. So I can become passionate about a, a lot of things. And I think that was one of the challenges I had in school. You know, I, I remember literally sitting in school, looking at the desk and going, God, this is a stupid design. It could look, it could be so much more functional if it was this, this, and this, right? Just, and, and that's the kind of crap I'd be thinking about instead of listening to the teacher. Next thing you know, I'm getting kicked out of class and I'm in the hallway, you know, but I think that that does just occur. And I, you know, I don't want to kind of bang on this drum too much, but that is part of what comes along with the dyslexic mind is that, is that ability to kind of see things from a different angle. And so, yeah, I would agree that certainly it is, um, it is something that I do carry with me is often looking at how things could be different or better. Um, and I would argue that it's not always better that is better. It is different that is actually creating the better outcome or the more mm. preferable outcome. Better just means an improvement on an existing thing. And I, that isn't the paradigm shift, right? Everybody's got a better hamburger. Well, who's going to come out with something that isn't the hamburger? You know what I mean? It's like, mm -hmm. you know, it, better is competition. And I feel like there's two mindsets that you can, 
you can exist with. You know, one is the, the competitive mindset, which is kind of operating from a, you know, there's a finite amount of opportunity and we're all gonna kind of fight over that or slice that pie. And the other is the creative mindset that just says that, you know, let's let's build an oven and bake as many pies as we want, you know? And, and I think that that's, that's the distinction there that, that different is actually what we're after when we're talking about paradigm shift as opposed to just better. Because better is the same thing, just improved. And I'm saying a complete shift, right? So back to the idea of, you know, what it is we do as a company, what it is that I've dedicated my life to at this point. Um, I feel like it has some of the most meaning um, for the future of humanity, um, you know, us proving this model. What's the story of, of the company? You So you came up with a business plan, you got some funding to give you a little bit of runway. And now we actually have to make a name for ourselves. What did that look like? So... In a nutshell, we can go deeper into this, but just, just to give a context, in a nutshell, the idea was to take a vertically integrated approach to improving the energy performance of commercial mid-market, commercial and industrial real estate. The idea for me was that we have been screaming from the rooftops for 30 years about what we should do for the environment, what we should do to fix you know, uh, carbon you know, emissions, like all of the things that we, you know, how do we save the trees, the whales, the whole thing, right? Everybody's talking about what we should do not much had really been done. Not much was happening. You know, the powers that be hadn't quite gotten on board like they have now. But, mm-hmm. uh, but the bigger issue was nobody had translated doing the right thing into making more money. And at the mm-hmm. end of the day, we all want to do the right thing. But if it's a cost, it's way down the list on things we're going to do, right? Mm-hmm. But if it can be presented in a way that's an investment strategy that says, look, you invest this, you're going to get X in yield or a return. And certainly for mid-market commercial industrial, we realized that we couldn't aim our, our, our deals at the tenants. They're just paying rent. That's not their building. They're not gonna invest in the infrastructure of that building for somebody else's building, right? Mm-hmm. So we decided we had to aim right at the ownership of, of the, 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 the real estate as the, the buyer and then translate what was tenant utility costs into new income for them on that real estate, right? So it's basically bundling and packaging investment strategy for commercial owners. Why the mid, why the mid market section? Great question. Um, mid market section was specifically chosen. I didn't realize how difficult it was going to be because I'd been selling in that environment with my previous company. Uh, mid market, because the way I saw it was the class A campuses, you know, the Googles and the, you know, Bank of America's or whatever you want to call it, right? That that level was already kind of being targeted by some of those organizations that I'd already mentioned, those ESCO companies and the large scale solar cities and companies like that. They were already in that space. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, there was a lot of kind of noise and and I guess information in the market around how to fix your house, you know, how to build a house better, how to go retrofit your house, you know, put in your LED lights, you know, mm-hmm. insulate better, put in the new double glazed windows, things like that. It was already kind of there, right? Besides the fact that it wasn't really juicy enough for me to go into, into you know, residential. I had spent time in residential market before. I just wanted to get out of it, to be honest with you. I was tired of the high churn, you know, kind of on deals. I wanted more substantial deals. And so I didn't want to go compete with the biggest, you know, we're talking about very, very financially strong companies that already had huge marketing divisions, already had, you know, fantastic technology suites. I didn't want to compete with them. Uh, I didn't want to go take the time to create enough of a business plan and strategy that I would go raise venture so that I could compete with them. I, I just didn't, I don't like commodity as you, as we've already covered, I'm more of the creative mindset that says, where is nobody, what, what is the most underserved segment of the market? Well, the most underserved segment of the market is mid-market commercial industrial. 
it also represents the largest swath of our real estate in the country, as well as the biggest chunk of deleterious performance, right? Like if we're ta- talking about the dirtiest segment, it's that. And so I said, look, that's the, that's the blue ocean. And mm-hmm. uh, so going back to your kind of primary question, what was that like? It was brutal. Uh, I mean, I spent the, you know, I, I knew that I had about six to eight months of runway based on the capital we raised. I needed to get proof of concept before I could go to another round, uh, you know, or, or go back to the same guys for more. And, uh, and so I worked my network, existing network, and I started just cold calling and I was getting hung up on, I was getting, you know, blown, you know, just kind of completely blown off. Uh, I had two little babies, you know, or two, three and four, whatever they were. Um, you know, I had, you know, a, a wife that, you know, that was looking for me to, you know, to like pull this off. Right. It was a tremendous amount of stress, stress. And it was, um, our first office was like in this like basement area of, of this house that we were renting. And, and I mean, there was nights where I was almost going to sleep in tears, you know, just cause it, I wasn't getting the traction. Finally, I got some attention. I, I got some people to, t- to pay attention to what I was saying, got a couple deals going. Uh, we, you know, we, we, we just started to get that traction and then we had some projects that we could kind of point to and over time we just bootstrapped it. And so by the time we got through that first, you know, kind of capital that we were given, we were already profitable, um, you know, on a kind of a short-term basis and, or at least cash flowing, I should say. And, uh, and we continued to bootstrap and we decided that that was the way we were going to go because our deals were working in the market. Um, there was market feedback that was positive. We were gaining traction in the direction we wanted to go. We were developing more vendor relationships, more subcontractor relationships, and it was starting to work. And so um, fast forward seven years, you know, last two years, we've been on the Inc. top 20% of the Inc. 5,000 fastest growing companies list. Um, we are, you know, uh, looking to double probably uh, next year, just based on our pipeline. It, and uh, we're going into, you know, multiple states now. And it's just, uh, it's kind of going bananas. It's hard to even keep up with. So grateful that we did push through that very difficult time. Still very challenging at this point, but um, but finally it's like we built the company uh, that we had dreamed we could. And, uh, and it's kind of off to the races at this point. Yeah, what's that like? I mean, first of all, congrats on that. I mean, that's not an easy thing to achieve. Um, and I think for a lot of people, they they assume where you're at is where it always was. Um, and, and I think that, you know, it, it is a lot of stress. A lot of people, I think, I think nowadays it's being an entrepreneur is considered a, an exciting thing. And, but it's, it's not easy. And it's a, it's a lot more stress than just going to a job and coming home. Well, right. Cause that would be more stressful for me. <laughs> yeah. Right. Me too. <laughs> no, but I, I, no, I would agree though. It, it is something to where you just, as long as you can show up and do your job, you're going to get paid. Right. Mm-hmm. For, for me, it's not only at this point, was it many, many years of, you know, first it was, can I make enough, you know, make enough money to, to support the, you know, the three of us. Then it was, uh, you know, can I, now we got to find an office. Now we got to hire people. Now I've got, you know, some mouths to feed. Well, now, you know, we've got 30 plus families that depend on us performing as a company for their, their, their existence, right Their or their, you know, their income. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's a whole nother layer, layer of stress, but that being said, it's pretty, pretty clear to me. And I've thought about this, you know, like what, what you always ask yourself, what would happen if this thing blew up and I had to go like, mm-hmm. I'm unemployable. There's just no way I'm not starting something else. Like I couldn't, I don't know that I could show up and, and just, you know, be an employee. It's just not who I am. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
I agree with you that there's been a lot of buzz in the market due to a lot of social media guys about, you know, you know, how glitzy and great it is to be a founder or an entrepreneur, you know, and then you've got the kind of the, the hustle kind of uh, hucksters, you know, they're just like, Oh, if you just work hard enough, you can make it happen. I, I don't believe everybody's cut out for it, to be honest with you. I, I, mm-hmm. I just don't. I, I think that if you're listening to this or watching this and, and you have an inclination to go out and try to start something, you got to really, really look deep inside yourself to know that you have to have an absolute massive appetite for risk. You've got to know how to, you know, you've got to look back historically and say, am I, ha- where have I just doubled down on myself? Like, where have I fully gambled on myself and made it happen? And then three, am I really willing to do whatever it takes for the good of the organization above myself, right? I can't mm-hmm. tell you in the early days how many times we didn't pay ourselves, you know, so that we could make payroll or, you know, how many, my wife would tell you, you know, how many vacations we had scheduled that I just had to cancel just because it was the wrong timing within the company and, and the business cycle. The things that you give up, but there's also the things you gain. It's so rewarding to look around and say this, you know, not, I hate taking credit for it, but that I created this, right? Or that I was a part of creating this or that I was the genesis of this thing that's become what it is, um, you know? And the fact that, hey, if I wanted to, it, you know, in an hour, I could take off and go hang out with my kids if I wanted to, you know? And, mm-hmm. and that's a unique thing. And I didn't always have that luxury, but that is part of what comes along with the entrepreneurship. But it is certainly a kind of a, a no, you know, it's this kind of novel, cool thing to be an entrepreneur. And it's all the way I came up. It's one of the grittiest things that you could possibly mm-hmm. do. Like, that's what you do if you're, if you're a goofball like me that really isn't cut out for a normal nine to five, right? Like, it's like kind of, it's the opposite. It's a little bit like, you better go find your own way or you're going to fail, you know? Like, yeah. that's what, you know. Yeah. And, and what do you kind of do in those, in those situations where you kind of feel like, in, in that moment, there aren't really options. I mean, because I, I, I'm much like you in the fact that, like, if I went to go apply for a job, I'm unemployable <laughs> because I've always run my own company. And you can't you can't just go and they ask for your experience and they go, cool, you experienced your own company. You haven't worked for anybody. And it's like, I have a lot of experience, but that that isn't how that works. What do you kind of do on that mindset side when things get really, really hard? Because there there aren't a lot of other options, whereas a lot of people kind of have a little bit of a fallback. Well, I, I mean, I think that's a super cool question. Um, we're digging into some neat stuff here. So, you know, <laughs> thank you. Um, I feel like one of the ingredients, and I think you have the same thing, just getting to know you a little bit over the you know last few weeks. You have to, I think, have a pretty optimistic viewpoint on the future, right? You, you have to see the, 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 um, the fullness of the upside, right? Or the potential of whatever it is you're doing. But you also, I think, for me at least, have to be constantly very, very aware of what worst case scenario looks like. Like you can't be Pollyannic. Like for me, I, I'm always looking at like, what is worst case scenario look like right now? Like what, it, what would that look like and how would I react? And what are some of the things I would do? And so being familiar with that, like always living in the clouds, like the vision and the potential, which you have to have if you're going to be an entrepreneur, not being familiar. And I think this is the mistake a lot of founders, entrepreneurs make is they're not spending enough time focused on what is worst case scenario look like, because the more friendly you can get with that, like the yogis, you know, I study a lot of Eastern philosophy. The yogis used to say like, the only way to get to where death isn't what death is what we think it is, is to be ultimately very familiar with it. Like it, mm-hmm. it, to be very, very aware of that day, what that looks like. And, and then you get rid of the fear, 
So what happens when people are surprised when worst case scenario happens, they don't know how to react. They haven't actually walked themselves through that. They haven't envisioned that. And so I spent a lot of time looking at that, like going, okay, this is worst case scenario, like real worst case scenario, right? And what would I do? Well, I'd live in my camper, in the campground, and I'd start, you know, calling my network, right? You know, or whatever that mm-hmm. scenario was. The second thing that I think comes along with natural entrepreneurs is they, they are relationship people. You know, we're people people. We like to talk. We like to jam. We like to, typically we are biz dev folks. You know, we like to develop business. Um, and so I think that for me, I always looked at like, who is my network? And, in, mm-hmm. and when times got really tough, who could I call that I have a relationship with that I could work through some of this with? Like, what are some of my options? You know, is it, is it you know, capital guys? A lot of times it's not. There's a lot of times mm-hmm. early in a business, nobody's giving you a freaking dime. You're a heavy risk. They don't want to give you anything, right? Mm-hmm. Banks aren't going to lend. We, 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 you know, no. we all know that, you know, <laughs> you have no credit, right? And, and by the way, I leveraged every bit of my personal credit to even, you know, for every, you know, all the cars, the company cars that we bought, they were all on my credit, you know, all that stuff, right? So your credit's, you know, kind of shot and you don't really have any corporate credit. And so it's more about like, who do I call that could help me stir up the next deal? Or who mm-hmm. could I call that would say, here, this is what we could, this is how I see this working, right? And so I would say that if you aren't developing a really good professional network, don't think about going into business for yourself. Because mm-hmm. that's, that's, I think, a paramount kind of thing that pe- another thing people miss. So I think people miss spending enough time on worst case scenario. So yeah, people don't get, I think, acquainted enough to the, to the worst case scenario. I think it's a positive mm-hmm. thing to do, spend time there. Um, at every at every stage, right? Like, and the one thing you can do is get is get is fool yourself, right? You get that little mm-hmm. bit of early traction, like we're killing it. I did that a couple times, you know. And you start thinking that it's always going to be that way. And mm-hmm. I'm telling you, every six months to a year, the freaking rug gets yanked out from under you. And, and oh even God. to this day, I mean, now it's things like the rug. You know, it used to be like that one check that we needed to make payroll and rent for the office was gets lost in the mail. Yeah, yeah, whatever it was, right? <laughs> And, yeah. and now it's more like things that are like governmental mandates, you know, or, or, or utility cost, you know, uh, rate tariff changes, things like that, like that affect us where the rug just gets pulled up. And so I'm always looking at the future. What is the worst case scenario? So it's not, it's not just now and then it gets easier. No, every stage of your business growth, look at like what could happen? Like what if this happened? What would we do? You become a better company or a better leader, I think, if you know way ahead of time. When this, 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 or that could happen, I know what my plays are. Mm-hmm. And, and then ultimately build your network. Always build your network. And the way, that, what, the way I always looked at that is, you know, I didn't come up. Our business was successful, but we didn't have a ton of money. You know, I didn't come up with, right. with, with, you know, I wasn't around a lot of money. And my dad was actually more of a, even though he was a kind of biz dev guy and he and a, and a, you know, started his own company, he was still coming from a fairly scarcity mindset, right? So I grew up around that. I didn't like it much. And I always felt like if I started my own company someday, I would find out how to create value for guys and gals that had money. Those folks out there that actually part of their business model was the deployment of capital. Go bring them value. And that becomes your network. Pretty soon, they, mm-hmm. when you call, they go, that's somebody calling with something good for me, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so instead of looking for what you can get, always be looking for what you can get. Because oh, that I law mean, of reciprocity is freaking real, dude. And I don't know if, you know, some people call it karma, some people call it whatever. The thing is, is if you're looking to, you know, to give, you're always going to be receiving. And in fact, you're opening that kind of channel for, for being able to receive. I think a lot of us could be receiving more. We're just not even open to it. 
And so you open that channel by first seeking to how do I, how do I give, how do I serve? That was my prayer every morning for the last, you know, 10 years of my life has been, how do I serve today as many people as I possibly can? Like, that's my mission, right? And so you got to find a vehicle to do that. And each of us has that intrinsic thing that we can create and do, whatever that is, yours is different than mine. We found that there's some parallel in, in yeah. what you do and versus what we do very, some lot of overlap there, um, mm -hmm. you know, and it's critical, you know, issues in society, but ultimately I think that's the mindset you gotta have. I love that you touched on that. Um, the idea of reciprocity and the idea of giving, not getting, because when you were discussing like building a network, I think oftentimes it's misunderstood as I'm going to build my network of people. So that way I can get, you know, higher up in life and that, that's not the answer. It's how, how can I bring value to people? How can I help people? And that's, that's what actually builds a genuine network. And I think it's so easy nowadays to just burn, burn a network. Facebook and Instagram. And then you've got, it's kind of like what I've seen, you know, it's, I think it's the younger generation specifically is a little bit of this, like, it's almost like collecting. It's almost like currency. Like how many people mm -hmm. do I have in my network is my, yeah. as a currency. And the, when you're looking at people as a commodity, that's not a network at all. Like that's mm -hmm. not, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about true relationships. I personally, and I say this a lot, I say it for our company business model. And I say it for myself as a human being, I would rather be a quarter inch wide and a mile deep than a mile wide and a quarter inch deep. And I think mm -hmm. what's wrong with, with society in general today, but certainly I'm noticing a lot of the younger guys that join our company and, you know, some of the younger, you know, entrepreneurs that I know, they are literally coached and trained by the, you know, the social media hype machine out there to be mm -hmm. a quarter, a quarter inch deep and a mile wide. And that's, mm -hmm. I think the wrong philosophy personally. Um, I'm not to say that it doesn't work if you're in some form of social, uh, you know, kind of, um, marketing right like that mm -hmm. that could be a good philosophy there but for me i think that relationships are tr have to be true and deep i have to know about your family and your business and your your challenges and your dreams in order for us to, to work well together and you vice versa with me right mm -hmm. that's how it works if we do this kind of like light touch you know yeah we're connected on you know i know him <laughs> whatever and we expect that we're going to get value out of that it's, it's just not going to happen yeah yeah, I mean, I, I see that a lot when it comes to when you start doing either a bigger deal um, with a business or you're doing anything that, you know, really takes a lot of time. It's not just like a quick transaction. At the end of the day, it comes down to trust. Um, I mean, I can't explain how many business deals that I've done where there's not a contract sent one way or the other. It's a, hey, I trust you and you trust me and let's do this. And I think that art of that, that handshake, if you will, deal um, is has died a little bit because there's not that genuine interest on either side to actually trust one another and know that like get to know each other. I mean, on a, on a deep level. And dude, this is an interesting concept, right? That I think a lot of people miss a contract can be a thing that forces us into behaving in a way which, you know, is fair. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and dictates how we're going to behave mm -hmm. or a contract can just be the documentation of our mutual mm -hmm. understanding and agreement. It's just a way of documenting mm -hmm. what we already just shook hands about. Right. And that's essentially the only way I'll do business, right? If we mm -hmm. can't come to like a human to human, business to business agreement that we're very happy with, where we both feel, you know, there's that old mantra. And, and some of my clients still say this, they go, 
deal's not done until nobody's happy, right? And that's an old kind of, you know, mm-hmm. everybody's got to give up something, right? Well, I say it's the opposite. It's like the deal's not done until everybody's happy, right? Mm-hmm. I won't do a deal unless it's win, win, win for everybody involved and even beyond that, right? You know, uh, secondary, tertiary, you know, uh, results of our deal uh, is wins. And so I'm a firm believer that you get it all on the table, you have a conversation human to human, and then it's documented on paper. And that's what the mm-hmm. contract represents. Here's what we talked about. Here's what we agreed upon. Just a different mindset, different style. It's certainly not the fastest way to do business. And I'm, you know, also feel like that's why lawyers are so expensive and prolific. You know, I feel like that's mm-hmm. why there's such a commoditized market is because mm-hmm. people are looking for speed and scale above depth mm-hmm. and true meaning behind their work, you know? And, and so it's just, I think it's just different philosophies, but yeah. Well, and how have you, how have you worked to really translate that into what you guys do? Cause I mean, from, I mean, at least my experience in, in real estate is that a lot of its transactions do take a while, but it's more like a lot of the paperwork, but a lot of it's about scale and, and getting revenue and making changes. Like, how did you get into that market of like, let's, let's make this a win for everybody? Because I think that was a big hurdle that you guys had to overcome. Yeah. So I think there's two, two parts to that question. The way that we, the first part that I kind of want to address, the way that we found scale for us, you know, or, or a version of scale, right? Instead of just a, what I would call a rifle approach to the market, which is, you know, you just go after deal, one deal to the next deal to the next deal, mm-hmm. where um, you can grow an organization very successfully that way, but it's a lot of work and it's not necessarily very uh, repeatable. And so what we realized is that instead of treating each customer like a project, like there's a customer and there's their project, and, you know, or there's that, that thing that we were going to do for them. Instead, we started looking for the type of uh, clients that had lots and lots of real estate so that, you know, we can kind of introduce the concept and do the quote unquote sale once and then go repeat that across their portfolio. Mm-hmm. And so that's where we kind of got our real speed and growth um, was just that, that kind of philosophy instead of, so we might, we might approach a client or get a referral to a client and talk to them. And we would only be thinking about that one piece of property that we knew about, right? And, and we would kind of speak to that. And, you know, certainly when we're talking about, as you well know, commercial real estate ownership, they don't tell you much about that. They're not going to let you behind their veil ever, right? Like mm-hmm. they hold their cards very close to the vest. So they're t- you're talking about that one property. Meanwhile, they're thinking about the 20 others, but they want to make sure you perform on this one before they even talk about the next one. Well, what we started doing is presenting with the, the, with the assumption already that very few people own one piece of commercial real estate, right? Like if you own commercial real estate, you probably own a lot. And so we started taking those relationships and speaking to them on a portfolio-wide kind of concept as opposed to that particular building. So that helped, right? Um, and, you know, the other part of it for us was a little bit more of like, you know, what it is we do that's so beneficial. Um, you know, both for our clients, but also across all of that, that long tail kind of uh, layers of, of platform behind that. So essentially what we're doing is saying that if you own commercial real estate, you're in the energy game and you don't even know it yet, right? You just, it's not necessarily, you know, kind of on your scope of radar. And what's happened is the technology is available. The, the cost matrix is kind of come to a point where we can go look at a commercial a commercial building and redesign that building's infrastructure to become more energy efficient, meaning that that tenant in that building is using less energy behind the meter. 
So that's a series of energy efficiency measures, right? You know, uh, things that we've already mentioned, LED lighting, you know, new glazing technologies, HVAC optimization, control systems, things like that. All pretty well known stuff at this point, but bundled together becomes very synergistically um, powerful. Uh, and then we're going to offset the remaining energy consumption with, you know, solar power. And then we're going to uh, bring in battery storage, which is now going to create a utility cost arbitrage where we're soaking up the excess energy that's on the grid in the middle of the day from all the solar that's been deployed and then reuse that power when it's most expensive. And so it kind of creates this shaving of peaks of cost in your energy because what most people don't realize is if you put solar on your building, you're not actually using that solar directly on that building, right? It's going back into the grid and the utility company is giving you a value for the power you're putting on the grid. Well, what's happened over the last few years is there's massive deployment of solar you know, in the market, there's literally in the middle of the day where solar produces its most, most of its power, there's more, more, more energy being put on the grid than needed. And so battery storage is becoming the actual true panacea to the grid and all the grid problems where we can now create islanding where you are actually producing power on site and then storing it in your battery and then reusing it. Or in a lot of cases, like I said, soaking up that excess uh, renewable power that's being pumped on the grid all over, you know, the, the local infrastructure and then storing it and reusing it on that facility. So it's kind of this thing that's normalizing the grids, uh, you know, kind of uh, peaks and, and, and valleys. Uh, it's creating a more localized distributed energy model and the economics for the, the investor of that system that we're build, designing and building are phenomenal. They're, you know, the rate of return on that investment is far greater than almost anything that you can find in the market because there's so much juiciness in that, right? There's so much money left on the table when we're talking about the cost of power and all of the different rate tariffs and all, I mean, it just goes on and on. It's very sophisticated. But the point is, is that, you know, I, I've, I've had commercial real estate investors tell me if this is real, what you're showing me, the returns on this project are greater than the returns I get on real estate itself, right? So we're basically a turbocharger to real, real estate investment model by using you know, this renewable energy kind of concept, right? Energy efficiency, renewable energy, stored energy, decentralized energy infrastructure. That was why I started the company. The, the kind of light bulb moment for me when I was wanted to go create this, this company was if we could get our hands on the lever of capital, right? If we could show capital that this is a strong investment strategy, all of the right stuff will get done, right? Like all of the greening of commercial real estate will happen as soon as we can show these guys that it's a strong investment strategy. So up until maybe, you know, right around we started this company, it wasn't happening so much that way, at least not in the, the kind of the market space that we're talking about. Now you've got, you know, firms like BlackRock, you know, that are that are basically saying, mm -hmm. we get it and we're moving 100% to sustainable real estate. The, the nut has been cracked. It's wide open at this point. Like really it's become, it, now the challenge is there's not enough companies like ours that actually understand mm -hmm. how not only to do the economic engineering and pro formas, and build that investment strategy, understand real estate metrics and cap rates and things like that, and, and understand tenancies and lease agreements and all of that goes into real estate, but also understand the energy engineering, uh, you know, and all of the utility side analysis, and then also have project management and construction to deliver the projects. There's very, very few companies like ours that do that, it, you know, and I mean, there's probably only a handful out there. Uh, and I think there's more and more coming online every day. And there's a huge ancillary industry being built around, you know, a lot of the technology that makes all this possible. Mm -hmm. 
Um, in fact, a lot of the class A stuff that I was talking about, those guys are literally just moving to a technology that, that, that does a lot of this without changing much of the equipment on the building. Because those buildings are newer, they have modern equipment that's fairly efficient. It's more about yep. monitoring, measuring, and, and kind of utilizing that equipment in a better way. So technology is yeah. coming a long way. I mean, a lot of things happening, but from the standpoint of a holistic, vertically integrated, change your real estate portfolio, we're, you know, it's a very novel thing at this point. Wow. Yeah. And, and I think when you take those, all those different verticals that you guys are in, I mean, that, that does paint the full picture for a real estate investor. And at the end of the day, sometimes that, I mean, whenever you build a new building, there's a cost to that building, not just the raw cost of actually building it, but you have from a sustainability mindset, there's an impact of getting the new materials, transporting the new materials, building it and everything that goes into building a building rather than taking something that's already built and optimizing it. And I think that you guys fit in each one of those segments. If they want to build new, they can. If they want to update, they can. Um, because there's, I mean, I think I think the pandemic has, has proven so much of the shift in commercial real estate. I mean, you see shopping malls pretty much empty. You see a lot of these buildings are suddenly mostly empty and and i would imagine for a real estate investor it's it's a little bit scary when they're like well my tenants are leaving um i still need to make a bottom line at the end of the day uh, i mean this is kind of the little behind the scenes secret of what's coming right there's a near future where your tenants leave and you're still you're still making money on that real estate mm -hmm. right it's because you've created in, in in the california market it's not quite there the east coast there's some spots in the east coast where this is happening where honestly, you don't even need a tenant. Tenant's kind of the icing on the cake in theory, right? Mm -hmm. And that you're you're actually site generating power, storing it, and then selling it back into at, at kind of a merchant, you're calling you know a merchant market for energy. You're selling it back into the grid for a return that's you know, or for for a rate that's that's enough to where you are making plenty of money on that real estate and you don't even have a tenant. Mm -hmm. You know, we're working on deals where we're coming in and saying, look, we'll 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 come to your 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 real estate with your tenant. We'll deploy all of this technology. We'll build this all. We'll take over your tenants' utility bills in a separate entity, and we'll write you a check as an owner. We'll bill your tenants, and we'll write you a check. Or, you know, in some cases, we do that same setup for the owner. And so at the end of the day, what happens is we hedge against some of the costs that cause tenants to leave in a bad economic environment, right? So what we're doing is stabilizing their utility costs, which is typically one of the most um, you know, hard to predict variable costs for a business, certainly, and we focus a lot on industrial, you know, in, in manufacturing, partially because that's where the biggest bang for your buck is. I mean, they're high energy users per, per square foot, high, you know, mm -hmm. energy use index, EUI. Also what they have working against them is that the more that they produce or the more shifts they add or the bigger, you know, the more equipment they bring in their facility, the more energy they're using. And so sometimes they're in a situation where it's the, kind of the law of diminishing returns, where the harder they work, the more they do, the less profit they make. And they don't know right away, but over time they start to see that. What happens when you can fix some of these utility costs in that environment, grow all you want, your utility cost is fixed. Now you have this massive escalator on net profit on, on your top line growth, right? Mm -hmm. And we've seen companies that we've worked with go bananas because of that. Like they were able mm -hmm. to predict their future better because what most companies don't realize is how the utility is actually billing them on their usage. And so they're adding shifts or equipment or whatever. And all of these crazy charges are showing up on their bill for, you know, peak demand charge or peak load or, you know, time of use and all these things that happen where 
they're like, you know, we're not making any more money. Yeah, why why would we expand if we can make more profit if we're even smaller? They just don't even know. It's like, you can only be so good at so many things, right? You're good at, you know, making microchip wafers, right? You're not good at, you know, understanding utilities, which is in a completely, you know, it's an ecosystem unto itself, utility, you know, cost and charge. So that's a big deal to, so we've seen a number of our past clients actually say that in the midst of, you know, tough times, that was one of the things that helped them succeed. Wow. So as a landlord or an owner, investor in real estate, you got to understand you're creating not only a stickier tenant, they're not going to go anywhere. They're paying less to be in your building than they would anywhere else. Uh, and two, they're, they had, you're kind of, you're de-risking them a little bit, you know, that tenancy a little bit. And three, you know, you're doing the right thing to help your tenant. You're doing the right thing for the environment. You're doing the right thing for your community. Mm-hmm. And it's highly profitable, right? So it's, it's kind of that win, win, win that I was talking about kind of becoming a little, um, you know, a little bit of a, a cliche at this point, but people planet profit, like that's kind of the mm-hmm. focus. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of the baseline of our company, what we're trying to do. So it's, you know, we could go down a long road of like all the crazy stuff that's going on out there, but there is a, there is a point where we think that there's going to be a massive shift. I mean, this real estate is going, a lot of it's going dark, um, but I think that there's going to be uh, a shift in, in, in not only what, what's allowable from a zoning standpoint, but it's just a shift in who's using what space for what. I think it's actually a very exciting time. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I forgive me because there were a lot of businesses that went under and, and I, yeah. I don't mean to gloss over that. That's, it's a tragedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I think things could have been handled differently, certainly for small businesses, small, medium businesses. I think they got hammered yeah. where, you know, it, you know, big multinational companies got everything they needed and they didn't even really need what they got. Um, mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the kind of, you know, the mom and pops and the medium, you know, kind of scale businesses just got, got crushed. You know, we, we got lucky, you know, we kind of had a moment in time where, we're in high demand regardless of COVID, you know, and then certainly there was some PPP stuff that helped us through, but, uh, but I mean, the amount of businesses that went under was just, it's just sad. However, mm-hmm. I'm one of those believers that, you know, the old example, right. When MP3 players came out, you know, overnight CD industry just went under, right. It was gone. Yeah. You know, all the jobs lost or those companies gone. Right. Well, where'd those people go? They went somewhere, you know, they went, they found new employment. I, I doubt, you know, I don't know the stats, but there are always going to be things that shift, Again, it goes back to the start of our conversation. I believe in paradigm shift. I believe in, in being open-minded. You can look at something and say, this is just terrible and, you know, kind of fold it up and go, this is awful. Or you can say, what's the opportunity? You know, all these, all these buildings have gone dark. Wow, that's scary. I don't think so. I think a lot of real estate investors go, and that's an opportunity. I certainly am. You know, I'm looking at, I've got buildings right down the street from me that are dark right now that I'm going, you know, I'm knocking on their door going, hey, do you want to sell? You know, so we'll see. It's an interesting time. Yeah. I think from from one standpoint, yeah, it is, you know, it's scary when stuff like this happens when there's suddenly like an uncertainty in the market. But you're right, there's, there's always opportunity. I mean, some of the greatest companies ever made come out of crises. And and that's, that's exactly what I think real estate is going through right now is one, there's a housing shortage Two, there's a there's a issue in commercial real estate that it's shifting that paradigm is shifting into what is the new model how can you take a shopping mall and turn it either into a hotel or a co-working space or something different than what it has traditionally been and there's so much opportunity right there for people to innovate one of the things that i really want to dive into with you is the idea of decentralized energy because i i think that i can probably speak for most people that there's a little bit of fear around like okay california's cutting off power in a lot of areas 
Texas, whatever, everything that happened there. Like, and then with everybody getting electric vehicles too, I'm, I'm even reading that now there's so much pressure on the electric grid that you may not be able to charge your vehicle. There, there's an energy issue. Um, so I'd love to talk with you about just what do, what do you see as kind of what that future is and what it can be? Decentralize everything, first of all, is my mindset. We're talking about one of them. I want to say that I was reading the tea leaves, you know, I had some brilliant, you know, future insight, you know, when we started this company, which there might've been a little bit of that, but I think we got kind of got lucky too. I did not understand when we started this company, the environment that we'd be in here at year seven, right? I just did not understand how big a deal this would become. We knew that there was an issue around climate. We knew there was an issue around the cost of energy and how to help people make more money with their real estate, how to help tenants, you know, pay less to, to be in those buildings. We knew that there was better technology to be deployed. I'm just a fan of efficiency, period, right? Like if there's a better way, I love electric cars just for that reason. It's just a far better way to make a vehicle go down the road. It just is, yeah. right? <laughs> Burning this fuel and an engine that's got all these moving parts and all this stuff. Or you could just have an electric, I mean, it's just, it's, I'm a fan of that, right? Mm -hmm. If there's better technology, let's use it. And so that was kind of my real driver, right? Like I saw an opportunity, but now this has become let's just focus on California, right? Let's not, let's even, let's go smaller now. Let's just focus on what you and I both know really well. And that's the mm -hmm. PG&E territory, which is kind of mm -hmm. central Northern California. And PG&E is kind of in the spotlight for a lot of reasons, right? You know, the, mm -hmm. the grid is essentially failing. Uh, I forget how many years old it is that they say, but it's, I mean, you know, it's, they try to keep up with it, but it's failing. I think a lot of people have no problem bashing PG&E which I think they, there's a lot of reason for that, that there's a lot of reason mm -hmm. to do so. But you also have to look at what, what it is they're trying to you know, do. It's, it's an incredibly difficult task. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the task that they have both in managing this, this infrastructure and maintaining this infrastructure plus shareholder value is the real problem, <laughs> real challenge, you know, but we won't get into that. So what the challenge is currently is all the things you brought up, brilliantly brought up, right? I mean, we've got more and more energy use all the time, a lot of it for good reason. We're electrifying more of our homes, more of our buildings. We're certainly electrifying our, you know, our transportation. Um, you know, we've got a, an old failing grid and then we've got largely wildland, you know, uh, transmission lines, right? To where they're running right through forests and, you know, rural areas and we've got fires. So we've got kind of the perfect storm of issues. We've got drought, Theoretically, somewhat of a drought environment. I think that some of that might be, you know, kind of overplayed, but a drought environment. Um, we've got a lot of wildlands. We've got old infrastructure transmission lines. And now we've got power shutdowns as the, 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 the answer to that, right? Like what happens when winds are high, power lines go down, start fires. We're losing, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of homes in California every year. And the only answer that anybody's come up with is just start shutting down power. Turn it off. You know, and that's, and that's really, you know, kind of what else would you do if you were PG&E? Like, you know, you want more lawsuits, mm -hmm. you want, you know, what do you do? Um, I think they could take some of their profit and go start to maintain some of the infrastructure in a, in a broader way, but you know, <laughs> I mean, who am I to, I don't, I don't know what that looks like. So the answer that we have, uh, you know, as part of what we're bringing as a solution or part of the solution, our component to it is, that the real answer to all of this is microgrids. And so what microgrid is, it just very simple terms. And there's more sophistication to this. Go look it up if, because I'm not gonna take an hour to explain it. The <laughs> microgrid is essentially saying that at any given time, you can cut the power that is coming from your utility company to your building and run 
uh, on your own site generated power and stored energy. So it's basically a sophisticated software system that's running your solar and your battery to work together in conjunction to where you have a resilient or islanded mode where you aren't really working off the grid. Not everybody can do that, right? So the next phase is how to create decentralized community microgrid systems. So what we're working on is first and foremost, bringing microgrids to large scale facilities. You know, we're talking to some of the larger manufacturers in our area. We're talking to um, large municipalities with large, you know, infrastructure and facilities and building microgrids for them, which works great. They've got the footprint, they've got the energy, they, they, they've got the right transmission, you know, just distribution lines coming that are the right, you know, amount of juice coming to the building to where we can actually do this. Um, what happens to all the folks that can't, right? And there's, there's a couple parts of this conversation. One is the folks that can't afford it. You, you might have a building or a home or you just don't have the capital to do it. Or two, you don't have the right for size, footprint, facility, rooftop, space, whatever it is. We're working with the local community choice aggregator, CCAs or CCEs as they're known, community choice energy in our area, the, you know, the kind of tri-county area of Monterey, uh, San Benito County, uh, Santa Cruz County uh, is called 3CE. And they're working on a program that's just been released and we've been helping them kind of develop this program of a distributed network of stored energy facilities. So these would be one to five megawatt batteries that are being placed all over the place. And what they're doing is working not only to kind of balance the grid, but also when that public safety plan shutdown happens, that, you know, high wind scenario somewhere up in the mountains that could cause a fire and they're shutting down power, but somehow it affects us here running our businesses. We'll be able to actually take a localized grid that isn't going to cause a fire and kind of start playing that energy across that localized grid. So that's decentralized energy. What it means is combination of microgrid facilities that have the ability to be resilient and then also funnel excess power back into the grid when needed. And then a lot of these, you know, everybody listening, the truth is the future around stabilizing the grid and renewable energy is in battery storage. Just get with that. Like there's more than enough solar yeah. out there. Solar is not going to stop, but it's not, solar doesn't fix anything. It's just pumping more power back on the grid that then the utility company kind of shares and, you know, distributes. There's a lot of conversation around the idea that it's, it's not an equitable thing and that the, the, the poorer people that can't afford solar are actually subsidizing the rich people who can't afford solar by the way that the utility companies caught. And so there's some changes coming around how much value they're going to give for your solar. So again, adding battery storage to every solar project is a key. People are doing that with their homes. And the bigger play is really about working with these community choice uh, aggregators, which essentially their function and goal is to provide clean energy to whoever wants it in their region. Mm -hmm. So most of the state now has a CCA that's doing that to where you can check your little box on your bill saying, I want clean energy only. To date, when they don't have that supply available, they're buying from solar farms out of state and having to you know, deliver that to your local area. It's not very effective. It doesn't work well economically. So the big push now, distributed energy, to concisely answer your question, is a distributed network of site-generated power as well as site-stored power that can work for the site that that power sitting, that stored energy is sitting on, but also can be used ahead of the meter and distributed around the regional network or grid. And what that does is it keeps costs lower for everybody that's buying energy. It helps fix the grid for the utility. So we might have one area up in the Sierras that's gonna cause a fire and they shut down the grid and it can have a deleterious effect across a lot of different communities. Here, what we're saying is like, a good example is our office is right at the end of the distribution line that runs all the way up into the Santa Cruz mountains 
up by past UCSE and up into the Empire Grade area. So if there's ever a planned shutdown up there, we lose power. The guys right across the street from us don't. Literally across the street, they're running. We don't have power. Well, we've built our own microgrid here at our offices now, so it's not you know an issue. They shut down power. We don't even know power got shut down. We just keep running. So that's kind of the future is, is this distributed network of these islanded power sources that are all clean energy generated, you know, solar generated power that's being stored in batteries and they're being able to be deployed to very, very sophisticated network of software that helps us all. And I think is a, an equitable way to, to help the community um, for a number of reasons. If you're the ice cream shop and power goes down, you've got a whole lot of product that's going to getting thrown away pretty quickly. You've not yeah. only not serving your customers, but you're throwing away product that you, you, you losing a lot of money. Yeah. So Again, it's, it's, it's a massive, uh, and, and now we're looking at emerging markets, you know, places that normally wouldn't be an, a bankable or investable market. But if you can be, build community microgrids in those environments, they now become an investable uh, kind of emerging market, you know, parts of Africa and, you know, different areas where all of a sudden we're kind of getting ahead of what our issues here for us in California and going, what will they be experiencing in five, 10 years of continued growth in that market? Let's bring in this technology now. So what does that look like, though, in terms for the utility companies? Because, you know, you think it's you want it to be a win-win-win, but, you know, at the end of the day, if you have distributed microgrids, it either is or isn't owned by PG&E in this, in this case, um, or it's owned by a neighborhood. What does that look like in terms of, I guess, like, control that the companies have traditionally had in terms of energy and for profits and for shareholders and all that kind of stuff. You know, I'm not, I'm going to speak to this. There's a limit to what I can be an expert on, right? Which is mm -hmm. very little, <laughs> but uh, I, I'm going to kind of talk about this, but I'm not the, I don't take this as like, I actually know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> tell you what I think. So what's happening in, in an example and again, I, I'm not sure what your listener base is because I keep referring to our local area and it's just because it's easy for me because it's top of mind. Um, but, you know, if people are across the country, um, we have a local, what was a, you know, kind of a, a, a fairly large scale power plant that was PG&E owned that recently got shut down. And they shut down last year just because it was what they would call kind of more of an ancillary power plant. Um, you know, what they call peaker plants. They only fire them up when there's a need for excess power on the grid. They've got their, you know, kind of the largest scale power plants. They're running all the time. And then as the grid needs more power, they fire up these peaker plants. Well, they're extremely dirty, you know, cause you're, it's just not a clean way to run. You know, if you're going on and offline, typically they're, you know, they're kind of an older functioning, you know, technology. Uh, and, and three, they're just expensive. It's not a, it's just not easy for the utility to do that. So recently they shut this one down in Moss Landing last year, which is, you know, kind of in between Santa Cruz and Monterey. Uh, you know, you and I grew up. Wait, that, that huge one. Yeah. Seeing the smoke. They come shut out. that down? Yeah. Seeing the smoke come out of the smokestacks. Yeah. 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 Shut that down. And now they've got the largest battery storage deployment uh, in, in, I think, in the world. I could be wrong. It could be the United States, but um, of batteries, Tesla batteries. And those Tesla batteries are functioning now as the peaker plant. So they're sitting right on the same site. We've got this giant infrastructure of this power plant. And then right there, you know, maybe a two acres worth of land is this whole stack of massive, you know, stack of Tesla batteries. And so those are functioning as the peaker plant now. And they're not, got it. The, I don't think the utility, I think the utility is buying the power from that, but they don't right. own it. 
right? Right. So my belief is the future looks like for the utilities that they're going to be paid what they should do best, which is maintain the infrastructure that delivers the power across the grid. Mm-hmm. You've got the California ISO that manages the California grid at large, making sure that everything's kind of in fluxing and flowing the way it should. But in PG&E territory, keep those lines good. You know, keep the go go rebuild the infrastructure. And so, what they should get paid for is distribution, not generation. Right. So right now, on your bill, you're paying for generation. You're paying for their power mm-hmm. plants to run, and they're charging you what they need to charge you to make a margin on that cost of producing that power right. um, and running that facility. On your bill, you're also getting a charge for distribution, meaning the lines that carries that power. So my belief is over time, the utility is going to get pushed more and more into, I think one of two things is going to happen. Either the states, you know, the state is going to start looking at being kind of becoming a partner or taking over utilities. And, and I guess, I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm totally speaking out of turn. I have no idea if that's plausible or what yeah. we look like. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or more likely, we're going to see more and more of these peaker facilities taking over the generation, right? So we've got large solar farms that are feeding these ener- the energy into these battery storage facilities that then are deploying the power as needed into the grid. And that the utility company is going to make their money just in the distribution, just maintaining that grid and, and charging for the lines being. Again, I'm not, there are people that are absolute experts in all of that and what that looks like moving forward, probably have a far better you know, thesis than I do on that. But that's just kind of the way I see it and what I know. Um, I try to keep mm-hmm. up on all that, but the problem we're trying to solve on the, you know, the regional level is big enough. Well, and, and what does that look like for battery storage? Because when you, when you think about battery storage, like eventually that battery won't be able to store power anymore and you have a whole disposal process to actually get rid of battery and that of course has an environmental impact as well i think that sometimes when we come up with new ideas we don't necessarily think about the long-term implications what does that look like in terms of battery storage i was just thinking about this this morning i woke up i was just kind of laying there thinking about things and i was you know one of the things i was thinking about is how there's this concept that we all need to kind of consider right is that at any given moment in time, we can look back in history and say, that was freaking wrong. You know, we, that was wrong. And now we're doing it right. Mm-hmm. Guarantee you in a certain point in the near future, you know, we're going to look back and say, we were doing it wrong and this is right. And so the idea that we all need to remember is nothing ever happens that way. The only thing that ever mm-hmm. is happening is there's an evolution. It's, it's, you know, there's, you know, a concept out there, a kind of philosophy out there called spiral dynamics. And they, it speaks to the idea that you're, you transcend and include, right? You learn from the past, include what you learned and then transcend it into the next phase, right? But what we're doing right now is not perfect at all, but it's Mm -hmm. all we know how to do, right? Like it's the best we can do right now. Mm -hmm. So to answer your question, currently there's better and better chemistry coming out for batteries, right? There, There are batteries that are very, very large that have almost zero deleterious waste you know, and they're called flow batteries and it's just kind of a liquid. Some of the, you know, the lithium batteries are worse than the nickel cadmium, you know, they're coming out now. Right. So we're always improving. Mm -hmm. But what I like more than that for like the current, you know, time that we're in here is that they were starting to say that at a, at a certain point that the battery's life has degraded, you know, the battery's degradation has come to a certain point. Let's just call it 80% of what maximum was. Mm -hmm which currently takes something like 15 years, you know, um, depending on the, the technology or, or the chemistry, you're going to get a degradation that gets you down to somewhere, some number, right? Well, one of the, the theorems out there, one of the you know, things that's being postulated, and I think some folks are actually, some companies are actually starting to do this, is to say, why not repower that facility that has all that demand and all that capital behind it, repower that battery to 100%, take the old kind of degraded batteries 
and then go use them in low power situations. So take them and now add another 15 years of life or 20 years of life by putting them in an electric bicycle or, you know, whatever, you know. Yeah. Further the life of the actual product. Yeah. Yeah. So because when you go to a low power use, the thing's going to last a lot light longer. Now cycles matter a lot. You know, how many cycles mm-hmm. that battery going through a day, but there's, there's basically what they're saying. There's a second life market. There's a third life market. And let's identify what those, those technologies are, those markets are, and start, instead of just running that battery into the ground and then having to throw it in the dump, let's go continue, let's extend the life of that battery through the deployment through different levels of technology, right? That's a big problem, you know, to solve. That's a, that's a very kind of sophisticated, hairy kind of thing. But it is, it is something very important to everybody because the last thing we want to do is repeat the, the sins of the past where we just mm-hmm. keep producing more and more shit that just screws up the world, right? So we're fixing today's energy problem, thinking, oh, look at us, you know, we're saving the whales and the trees and the redwoods. And, but meanwhile, we're totally continuing to blow up the planet. So I think that there's, we're starting to get better at that. Um, and again, it's not my area of expertise. You know, I, I certainly understand how to, how to, how to build markets, you know, in, in mid, mid, you know, mid-market commercial industrial real estate and, and use the technology to, that we have available to do that. But some of these long tail issues, I know that mm-hmm. are, there are a lot of good thinking going into it. And I do think that parallel paths are better and better technology that's, that's uh, cleaner and cleaner. And then at mm-hmm. the same time, what are we doing with the unclean technology to keep it from going into, you know, landfills? Yeah. And most, most of it, I mean, when you talk to innovation, it's hindsight's always 2020. You're always like, oh man, we should have done this. We should have done that. But yeah, I think, I think life cycle is a very important thing to think about is how can we elongate it? I was just in Healdsburg with my wife having a little weekend getaway together and we were walking by an antique shop and I saw one of those old school, like really old school bicycles with a giant front wheel and the tiny little back wheel. Yes. Pedals are like direct drive to that giant front wheel that actually is what you have to turn to steer. So first of all, you like can't kind of can't keep pedaling while you're turning. Right. And you can't get on and off the bike very easy because your seat's like eight feet in the air. And I'm like, what the? hell is that like who how is that a good idea you know when you look at a bike now you're like Mm -hmm. what what are you thinking but that's just an example of like how we how how like single-mindedly focused we are on solving the the problem ahead of us like i want two two wheel locomotion like i want a a human powered thing that goes down the road on two wheels and that's all that came to that guy's you know head at the the time and and you know any kid right now if you ask him to design a bike would design a bike better than that you know what i mean but that's just Mm -hmm. It's just the way it works. It's crazy. It was one of those yeah. moments where I was like, good Lord, like, look at us. We're just, we're just monkeys with really, at the end of the day, we're really not that advanced. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a process and, and we're constantly trying to innovate. And I'm sure in 50 years, we'll look back and be like, what were we doing at that time with the technology that's, you know, current in 50 years? You know, we'll have indefinite cold fusion, like the size of a you know, can of beans that fuels yeah. everything in life. You know what I mean? Literally. <laughs> So what does it look like for, I mean, I guess like the future of sustainability, especially for for you guys in, in the industrial market. I mean, there's more, there's more stuff getting produced every day. There's a lot of manufacturing that's going on, I think, at a, at a faster rate than it used to be manufactured. So what does that look like for, I mean, not only your business, but in terms of making manufacturing as clean as possible? Well, I mean, shoot, the future of sustainability, for one, sustainability is, sustainability is becoming kind of a, a must-have instead of a like-to-have, you know, on a number of fronts, right? You know, we've got a lot of government, you know, ESG around, you know, mm-hmm. just what that looks like. Everybody who's 
you know, at the larger scale in the marketplace has some level of governance around sustainability. And I think that more and more of your average homeowner is recognizing that sustainability actually is a cost savings, right? That's a, that's a huge mm-hmm. shift just in itself. Mm-hmm. Used to be that like, well, yeah, you know, do the right thing and buy it for the environment or for, you know, the planet, you know, it costs more, right? Mm-hmm. And I wanted to prove that, you know, model myself. I, I had the privilege to be able to kind of build my own home recently. And I said, you know, I want to not only build my own home in the greenest way possible, but also, um, you know, it, as a microgrid too, right? So it's mm-hmm. fully resilient. Power gets shut down. We live up in the Santa Cruz Mountains. The power gets shut down. We don't even know it happened, right? Until we looked across mm-hmm. the street and see, you know, the, the, the neighbor down the road that doesn't have lights on, you know? And, but we wanted beyond that to prove that it was actually more economic. And so fully electric house, you know, there's no gas running to our place at all. And we built at a lower per square foot cost than like, you know, well, well below average. And it's, it's a, a very modern, nice home and done with all of the right technology. And so it was kind of just proof of concept for myself that I was, you know, kind of walking the talk um, and that I could be an example of what I preach that now not everybody's out building their own new home. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but certainly working towards a more sustainable uh, environment, both in your business and your home actually does have a return on investment. You just have to be willing to do it. There's a lot of funding mechanisms, so it doesn't have to be your own capital anymore. Um, so I think that there's, there's, you know, it doesn't take a lot of research on the internet to find some of these, whether it's a residential kind of program or certainly at the commercial level, there's a lot of companies like us that can bring the capital needed to the project. Uh, so the future sustainability for me though, you know, like what I'm like really, really focused on is distributed energy networks, right? Um, you know, these regional kind of islanded or, you know, you might have a, an industrial park. Another example that can be a total islanded, you know, it's still manuf- it's still running, it's still producing the food that we eat. You know, I'm a big fan of like food production facilities where if you look at what worst case scenario looks like for our society, it's grid failure and then no food, right? Yep. We're now all of a sudden, you know, we have become people that have moved closer and closer to, you know, these centers, city centers, where we don't grow our own food. We don't, and the food that we do grow typically at the commercial level is not really edible. It's typically for some other animal or something, you know, or some other use type. And so at the end of the day, I think that's worst case scenario for society is you've got grid failures that are causing food shortages. And now you got a real freaking problem because now you have some chaos in the streets, right? You're talking mm-hmm. about turning normal people into thieves and, you know, um, and murderers, right? Like that's a really bad yeah. So, you know, cause you're going to do whatever it takes to feed your kid. That's just the yeah, bottom line. survival. Yeah. So that's something we don't want to see. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and so I'm a big fan of the idea that we just did a project for Beckman's bakery. If you're from Santa Cruz, you, yeah. you know, Beckman's right. So um, good. Yeah. And you know, they make some of the best sourdough ever. Their sliced sourdough is amazing. And shout out to Beckman's. You know, if you're outside the area, you're, um, you know, you may have heard of Beckman's. They're, they're, you know, their they're bread goes all over the place. So we just did a project where we rebuilt a, a, an old cold storage facility. You talked about buildings going dark, empty mm-hmm. cold storage. It was just a big refrigeration facility. We rebuilt that into their new man, you know, manufacturing facility, bread man- making facility, which is massive. It's 50,000 square feet of essentially industrial food production. But at the same time, we wanted to make them resilient. We wanted to, you know, give them an opportunity to, to at least stay running or, you know, reduce some of their costs, ops costs. And, you know, and so we cover that thing in solar. They're basically offsetting almost 100% of their, you know, right around 90% of their, their power consumption with renewable, with, with site generated power, solar. Um, and now we're working with the local 
you know, one of the sites that we've identified that we want to drop one of these batteries in that will feed the grid, but also back that facility mm -hmm. up when needed uh, is Beckman's. Mm -hmm. So there's a point at which they'll be able to keep pumping out bread, even if the, there's a shutdown at the grid level. So mm -hmm. outside of that, I believe strongly that America needs to bring manufacturing back on, on shore. Um, mm -hmm. I think that that was one of the biggest mistakes we've ever made. Mm -hmm. I, I, I get that part of the rationale was that it was dirty, low pay, you know, dirty facilities, you know, literally not good for the environment, low paying, hardworking jobs, you know, not really what America wanted to become. We went into tech, we went into finance, we became this kind of superpower in, in that kind of mm -hmm. concept. But I think that it's now looking 30 years later, we're realizing that, that wasn't the smartest move. So what I'm calling, you know, I like to call it the new blue collar is green, right? The new green collar, mm -hmm. which is either working in the, the sector that we're in, like getting jobs at companies like ours or in the solar industry or becoming an electrician that can like actually learn how to do some of these battery tie-ins and things like that, right? Uh, and all of the kind of secondary, you know, tertiary jobs behind that distribution of, of these technologies, whatever. But also that you could go to work now in a modern American factory that's a, a microgrid facility, super clean, fully electric, whatever it is, and actually get paid as much as the guy that's got an engineering degree. Because right now there's a shortage of skilled labor in all fields that require it. Construction, uh, you know, manufacturing, those people now, and, and now what used to just be a job on the factory floor, you know, pushing buttons, pulling levers and mopping and whatever is now actually more of a high tech process, right? If you look at a mo modern manufacturing facility, it's, it's highly skilled labor. Those guys get mm -hmm. paid well, those gals get paid well. And some of them actually have engineering degrees that are working on that floor, right? And so when you've got a facility that you can make a green, not only is the facility that's producing the goods that we use here domestically, a green facility, meaning it's not, the carbon footprint is very, very low. It also can serve as a hub because it's a high power use facility, meaning it's got good uh, distribution lines running to it. That can be a node, a liquid node for energy being distributed across our local community, right? So that's what we're talking about, a decentralized energy, uh, you know, what we call, in, if you go to our website, we're calling it the new energy future. And we're talking about all of this, right? So not only are we making, and here's the next level to this, why don't we have manufacturing in the United States? Well, we can't compete with China, mm -hmm. India, Taiwan, you know, we, that, we can't, it's too expensive here. Yeah, yeah. but if you, if you get rid of the cost of, you know, the, the, or if you- The manufacturing cost. The cost. That's a big ops cost for those guys. We have a manufacturer that we did a work for in Fremont, a massive manufacturer of, of uh, uh, chip prototypes. And um, they told us that they actually have been able to now compete with overseas pricing because of the project we brought to them, which was over a megawatt of, of wow. solar uh, power. And, uh, and now the next phase is bring uh, a large scale battery. So it, it, mat it matters, it works. Mm -hmm. What we're talking about is a new energy future for America that works. We're, we're trying to prove that model. We've been asked, you know, are you gonna scale nationally? Maybe, you know, but that's not really what I, what I set out to do. What my goal is to, again, quarter inch Paradigm wide, shift. right, is to prove the model in the richest, most effective environment possible, which is the Silicon Valley kind of Bay Area that we're in, uh, where we've got all the right ingredients to make it happen so that we can prove what's possible for the rest of the country. Yeah. So that is, and, and that's a viewpoint from my, my viewpoint, just being shared there. I'm a big, big, uh, I'm very bullish on bringing you know, that blue collar manufacturing job back in the right way. And I'm a big fan of companies that are willing to stay on shore, willing to pay into the tax base, willing to participate in that, that thing that was once what made America strong, 
um, was the fact that we produced a lot of the goods that we used here. And then we actually had good enough stuff to send overseas, you know? So how do we do that? we got to start changing the, that, that cost profile, right? That, that, that ops cost. And, uh, and we got to love what we're doing here. So green facilities, we can't have, you know, these crazy dirty facilities all over the place. We're not open to that anymore. So that's, that's my answer there. It's like creating these super cool facilities, whatever they are, that are not only green, but are a liquid nodal point for distributed energy, you know, um, across the network. I think that's great. I mean, it, and at the end of the day, to be able to distribute goods, it, when you have to put it on a ship and send it overseas, that not only costs money, but it also has an impact as well. And it's um, not long before that, that, that thing being shipped to your doorstep is coming on an electric truck, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, it went from the distribution center to distribution center and an electric, you know, semi-truck, right? So mm-hmm. um, I feel like if I was, I, I, I do think with the current administration that future could be viable. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's going to happen organically no matter what, but I think it could be expedited with the, the kind of current thinking that we have. Right. You basically incentivize the businesses that it's an, it's a financial advantage to be able to make that transition. And sure, it might might be a little bit hard to do initially. It's a little bit more of a capital cost, but we'll help you out with that. But long term, it will have a better impact, bigger bigger business for you and a, and a better network for everybody else and, and more jobs at the end of the day. Because I think manufacturing is something that I, I think everybody's starting to feel now. I think for, for a while, people who were in manufacturing, people who were in any type of these businesses like you saw the wave coming but now i think when people aren't getting their refrigerators or they're not getting their electric cars or they're not getting their cell phones because there's a chip shortage now they're going oh man why why don't we have them here hedging the fact that like we wouldn't have to and that it would it would just all work itself out um and i think now people are starting to figure out we gotta we gotta kind of make those moves on our own yeah i mean it's even stuff that we don't even think about like we just had a conversation with martinelli's you know what i didn't realize is they're the largest I, I believe i read they're the largest producer of apple juice globally like they literally pump out globally anybody else right and um i think that i read that and, and don't quote me on it but the point is they're they're that, that's a massive enterprise it's been around a long long time i think since like 1908 mm-hmm. or something right Hey, if you don't want champagne on New Year's, you get Martinelli's. Yeah, man. Or when you're a kid, like I used to love yeah. drinking champagne on New Year's. <laughs> I got my, my Martinelli's sparkling apple juice. That's yes. The best. You know, and you forget too, you go through the grocery store and you see those little, little, you know, round apple juice, little things that look kind of like an apple. That's all Martinelli's. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, we just had a conversation with them. You know, their, their, their CEO is very, very interested in the idea of how to, how to turn that facility into a microgrid, how to get away from the fact that either rising costs of, of, of power are affecting them and their bottom line. And also the, the power shutdowns that are occurring in our area, which will happen, you know, brownouts are happening for different reasons all over the country. Um, what we just saw in Texas, you have nothing to do with, mm-hmm. you know, California or fires. I mean, it's just a total failure. Right. And so this awareness is occurring. And so, you know, they're going, Hey, how do we, you know, let's, let's do this here. So it's becoming something that is actually what was just kind of a pipe dream just a few years ago is now a reality. Right. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, based on Moore's law, you know, of just how quickly technology evolves. I think we're, I think somebody I read somewhere recently that we're even outpacing Moore's law on technology. And if you don't really. Yeah. Wow. Um, you know, and, and I forget what the, the equation is there for Moore's law, but essentially it's just the speed at which technology evolves. What we're going to see in the next two to three years is mind blowing. It's it, it's mm-hmm. game changing. And what we want to do is kind of ripen the environment, ripen people's you know consciousness and thinking around what's possible. Because we're kind of at a moment in time where almost anything is possible. Private companies going into space. We've got, I mean, it's just crazy what's going on. And so 
you know, open, if we are all open to the idea of what can we do, and, and I think we want to bring this part of California as kind of a real proof concept, then California at large, and then eventually the country at what's possible for this country to become kind of a more of a beacon, like we used to be a beacon of like the right way to do things. Mm -hmm. I think the blockchain technology, you and I were talking about this the other day, I think blockchain <laughs> and crypto are really going to change. I mean, blockchain more, more, more than anything is going to change the way commerce is done and it's going to open the door for a lot more free exchange of things like energy. I mean, we've mm -hmm. got one of our guys on staff is like a literal genius and he's working on the application of blockchain with distributed energy networks and like how that's going to work, getting ahead of when that day comes that we can actually deploy in that manner. Yeah, when the highway, when the blockchain highway is fast enough where you can actually process all of that. Yeah, so I mean, you know, it's it's bananas, uh, but uh, I, I think I'm I'm very, you know, it's a tough it's a tough time for a lot of people. It's we just came out of one of the toughest times I think globally, you know, for for many many years. I you know I don't want to kind of be that guy that's like partying while everybody else is crying. You know, I'm not I'm not doing that. I'm just saying be optimistic. You know, because mm -hmm. we did come through a tough time, but you said it earlier sometimes the, the toughest of times are what creates the biggest opportunity or the biggest breakthrough breakdown usually equals breakthrough. And, yeah. um, I think we're, we're seeing that right now with, with the way things are headed. I really have a lot of hope for the future. There's a lot of yeah. bad shit going on in the world, but like, I really have a lot of hope for the future based on this convergence of technology and mindset tech tech was kind of a blunt instrument, uh, you know, for the last 20 years, you know, where unless mm -hmm. you were in it, you didn't really get it. And you use this periphery, you know, we knew how to use email and our cell phones and stuff, but like really didn't understand what tech was doing. Well, now you got freaking, you know, 14 year old kids amassing wealth through freaking blockchain. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. it's you know, through crypto, it's like, we're just on the precipice of a very interesting time. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. That's it's a very, very exciting time in so many different sectors, too. And it's and material space is changing. Tech space is changing. Food, food creation is changing. And I say creation because people are learning how to actually grow food in completely different ways, um, because food is also a global issue that people are facing. And there's just so much innovation in so many different areas that, yeah, we're in a really exciting time. And the coolest part is we all as humans have the opportunity to to change that narrative and i think now is even easier than ever to get an idea out there but at the end of the day it's going to take that hard work to actually get there it's going to take that dedication and the passion to want to change and shift that paradigm you know what's interesting is I, that's one of the thoughts i've had recently is you know the new thing the new skill that i, I mean i i actually was telling my kids this the other day there was a time where getting to information was difficult, right? It was finding information was the challenge, right? Like we, you know, only the elites actually had the real science or information, right? Then we moved into like the information age. And then it was like, you know, kind of a little bit of like understanding the information, uh, getting good at, you know, searching for the information, knowing that it was there. I think the new skill set that's going to be required is discernment. I think we actually are in such, there's such a mass of, I mean, literally all the information in the world ever amassed is at our fingertips. A five-year-old can get to it basically, right? So what does that mean? We have to get good at discerning what's, what we're looking for, what's right, what's not right, truth versus fiction, falsity, you know, and, and that skill set is one that's difficult to develop, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. like, how do you develop discernment? How do you define you know, do I believe this story versus that? Or what is the real truth here? What's the real science behind this? 
you know, we're in a, we're in like a dark ages almost of, of this new wave of information where you've got people literally believing a completely different narrative than, uh, you know, 50% of the population, right? Mm -hmm. Literally believe something totally different exists or is the reality. It's mm -hmm. bizarre, right? So I think that that's going to eventually evolve and, you know, we'll, we'll, and, and part of what that is discernment. I think we need to remember that as individuals, but it kind of leads me to discernment, meaning not just in information, but in how you choose what you use. And I think that you're, I've, I've kind of heard you say it a few times. And I think you're really big on this, which is supply chain, you know, uh, you know, not just supply chain kind of understanding, but like how clean is that when you're looking mm -hmm. at that, you know, you know, from, from inception to use, like how, mm -hmm. how did that thing come to be and how dirty is it? I think that's a way bigger issue. And there's a lot of people working on it, but I think it's a way bigger, you brought up something, a simple concept, right? I can buy it here for a couple bucks more and, or I could, you know, buy it from China, but I'm not taking into consideration all of the things that are happening in a negative way to get it from China to here. Right. Mm -hmm. um, not only is the labor being mistreated there potentially, I'm not saying for mm -hmm. sure, but could be very well be, but all of the deleterious effects to the environment and, and, and sending a cargo ship all the way to the United States for the very thing that could have been produced here. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, that's just one stupid, simple example, but I'd love to hear more from you. Like on what, what is like, you've obviously delved into that from like a material generation standpoint, like what, and what does that look like? And will blockchain enable us to understand that life cycle analysis of, of that material? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that from, from a blockchain standpoint, one of the coolest things I think that blockchain has enabled people to do is with the level of encryption that it has, you can't, when you're talking about discernment, you can't fake the information from it. It is on a public blockchain that lasts forever and a, a supercomputer can't solve that. And, and if it did, it would take too long for it to solve it to where people just move on. So you have this opportunity to actually see where exactly your product comes from, who was actually working on your product or with your product, who was the farmer, who was the person laboring on it, who do they work for and is you know you get to know all the subcontractors that whole supply chain because you can understand that whole picture so like if if you were to just go locally to a guy and say hey i want you to build a chair for me you can trust that he he's going to build that chair in his in his warehouse and he and you're going to pick up that chair but you don't know if he went to home depot to get that wood which could have come from china you don't know if he got a sustainably sourced wood and or is he using a toxic glue or is he whatever right the varnish whatever Exactly. And and almost what I've always been passionate about is we have nutrition labels for food, which are, are actually really hard to read because you, you grab something that's, you know, you may be sensitive to gluten and you're looking for gluten-free products, but then you flip over the gluten-free label and it says gluten-free, but then it has 50 other things in it that make it taste good that's gluten-free and it's not necessarily going to be better for you. Yeah. I, you know, I, have a, I, I see a, a future not too far down the road where we're going to have scores, right? This is going to have an environmental score. This is going to have a health score, right? Um, mm -hmm. I know that the the podcast I was listening to the other day, this you know this MIT you know kind of uh, uh, what's his I forget what his 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 practice is, but basically it's all about longevity. And he was saying that like there's a way now they're coming out with his one of his companies that he created is coming out with a way to basically give you your metabolic score, saying like okay you might be you know 34 years old, but metabolically you're only 30 because you've been eating organically and exercising, right? Wow. Or like, dude, you smoke and, you know, eat cheeseburgers all day. You're 48, but you really are like 65, right? 
and that there's a way to take a test like it's going to be just literally a saliva swab and like send it in they're going to be like dude look and here's the things that you should do to correct that right because mm -hmm. you it's never too late his his whole po point or you know thesis is that and he's done it to himself so he knows this is possible he's actually aging backwards metabolically mm -hmm. so you could be you know metabolically 65 but only actually be 48 but um, but start to work backwards and get back to where by the time you're 55, you're actually, you know, metabolically 48, you know, like you can do that. And he's building recipes. There's a lot of like, you know, molecular kind of stuff that's going on, uh, you know, cocktails of, of antioxidants and things that they're doing. Um, it's pretty radical science. But the point that I guess I'm getting after is I think that soon in our future as humanity, we're going to have like, or at least in the United States, basic scores, like supply chain, like this thing has a, you know, a uh, environmental impact score or carbon, you know, score of just it's, all we have to do is that a 34 and that one's a 28, you know, or mm -hmm. um, a health score on your food. I don't think that that's possible, again, until we mm -hmm. have truth. And the only way to secure truth is in blockchain. You know, you look yep. at lead, right? Lead buildings um, on average, which I'm not a huge lead fan, but just as an example of like a rating, you know, kind of certification, you know, vehicle, lead buildings are worth significantly more than non-lead buildings mm -hmm. and lead platinum is worth significantly more than lead gold right it's just the way it is um and it's not just because they have the shiny plaque on the wall it literally is a better freaking building you know mm -hmm. and it's a better building for people to work in and some of what i don't like about lead is it the it's just some of it is just pure cost with no return so it's a little bit harder to do it's basically only for people with money that they want to spend to do the right thing it's not really all investment you know to return which is what we work on. So that's why I kind of like, a, 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 like fundamentally oppose it a little bit, but some of it's cool. Like you can get lead points because you have bike racks, you know, where, yeah. Hey, you're incentivizing people to ride bikes. Like it's stuff like that. Or you have a recycling program, things like that, but which I think are good, but they're not necessarily driving the mission in a way that I think is like what we're talking about as a company. Um, Cause they may not be filling the bike racks. They may just be sitting there. Yeah, um, ex exactly. Or that it just costs money. Like it's not really right. there's no return. So you're basically telling people to get a good lead score. You got to spend more money. Than more mm -hmm. I totally agree. I mean, I think that's that's the idea of transparency. It's it's give people the ability to make a choice that they think is going to be best for them um, and and just be open about it. And may the that to me, that's that's what true capitalism is. It's let let people decide and the market will decide what which one is going to do better if you will than the other one by like 80 percent of the youth today for talking about free market capitalism right mm -hmm. i don't think that because there is a lot that can happen in a negative way where people are being you know there is an inequality to it to some extent it can happen right mm -hmm. and you've got to be thoughtful around that um i think also that you you end up in a place which has been problematic for us which is profit over everything you know and you mm -hmm. see what happens in this government corporate industrial complex where it's just it's driving the you know the planet and you know and, and people off a cliff but what we're talking about i think here that i think that we should really kind of caveat is that we're talking about freedom for choice of everyone right mm -hmm. which i think does create an equitable environment you have freedom through through information right if you yep. actually are looking at the truth you can make your decision um mm -hmm. i think it does open the door for more, a new i think a I'm really a big fan of like a, this new version of potential capitalism that I think is coming around the corner, which is a social capitalism, yep. you know? Um, and I think it's because of crypto and blockchain, because of, you know, transparency, like you've been talking about, I think that that's actually coming and mm -hmm. I'm really excited to see what that looks like. Um, I'm not smart enough to actually 
project what that looks like, but I th- I'm excited <laughs> to see what happens, you know? Yeah, definitely. Me too. I mean, I think, I think it's an exciting future on that end. And I think giving people the choice is just awesome. It, it gives, it gives the market a chance to kind of regulate itself um, rather than, you know, when you, when you figure out that a holding company actually owns like 15 different companies and they'll even bash each other's companies just to make marketing and get people to talk about it, but they're all winning at the end of the day. Or that, you know, De Beers, Diamonds or whatever, you really can trace back what's actually happening in Africa, right? And, mm-hmm. and now you don't, you know, all of a sudden you're like, I'm not buying my wife, you know, my fiance a diamond for, we're changing that paradigm. Fuck diamonds. Mm-hmm. We're not using diamonds for engagement rings anymore. You know what I mean? That's like, we're, who cares? Like, we'll use something else. It's, we've been bamboozled by corporate for a long time now. And it's not just corporate, it's, it's the fine, you know, it's the high finance, it's Wall Street, corporate, government, you know, complex that exists, that's truly the empire that we don't ever get to see behind that curtain. Like we just, mm-hmm. as, you know, the average person, we have no idea what's really going on. And all we get as information is what we see on that freaking commercial, or we mm-hmm. see in that ad. That's all we, that's how we're making our decisions. And so mm-hmm. we're talking about freedom of information. That's the kind of new social capitalism that I'm, that I'm looking for. You know, where you can actually make a decision based in some level of understanding and truth that isn't mystified. And well, I'll bring this back to a few last questions just because I know like we're running up on time. I don't know what your day is looking like, but do you remember your first consciously sustainable purchase that you made where you're like, this is a decision that I'm making to buy something because it's good for the planet? Damn it, dude. I've listened to some of your podcasts and I heard you ask these questions and I didn't prepare. All right. Let me think if I can think quickly here. This is going to sound totally crazy but this is what popped into my head i was shopping for a new pair of sandals flip-flops mm-hmm. you know and sitting right next to what i would normally buy was something that said you know recycled sustainable or whatever it was i mean this is years ago right and, and it was just a and b choice for me right in front of me and you know at the time the the sandals and i don't remember who the manufacturer was or the, the brand was it was like you know, maybe 30% more. And I literally was like, screw this dude. Like it's time to start. And, you know, and that was kind of a tipping point for me in recognizing, like I built a company that was trying to drive a change in the biggest, dirtiest segment of our, you know, of of our country. Um, But yet I wasn't making choices around even like, okay, so I have the privilege of paying a few bucks more for sandals, right? Like I can do that. And yet I wasn't even thinking about it, like from a a proactive standpoint, it had to be right in my face, like sitting there staring at me, like you're basically looking me in the eye going, you're an asshole if you don't buy, you know, you don't buy (laughs) the recycled, you know, the recycled sustainable sandals. And from there, it took off for us, you know, as a family. And I know that you've probably heard this a number of times, but from there it took off where it's like, we started making decisions around first like local above everything recycled next sustainable for sure right and like just going through that kind of analysis on what we're buying and where we're putting our you know where are we voting we're voting with our dollars which companies do we want to survive you know which Mm -hmm. companies do we want to see thrive the the old way you know that's mass producing and probably using you know really bad practices and probably not paying their employees enough or the new way that's saying hey you're going to pay a few bucks more but you're you're investing in the future for your kids you're investing in a better world and we started like as a family kind of, and we have those conversations with our kids. Now we do a lot of upcycling with, you know, handing off old clothes to families that we know have kids that can use those clothes. Again, we're trying to buy when we buy new, trying to buy, you know, either we actually like buying used 
you know, adding to that life cycle of, of anything. It's already there, right? I feel like there's a mistake being made around buying sustainable stuff in that you're going to throw away your old stuff and then just go buy sustainable and feel good about yourself. And I'm like, no, yeah. like part of it is how long can we take that thing that already exists and continue its life, you know? So we're all about like buying stuff used and then selling stuff on the used market um, so that there's really no life cycle, you know, life and death. Like you just keep that stuff moving. Um, and then when we do buy new, we're buying things that, that last. I think it's mm -hmm. super important to say like, is that a quality item? Disposable yes. is bullshit. Like get off of that. Like, go buy the old school razor and like use that thing. Like go buy, don't buy disposable, you mm -hmm. know, plastic cups, buy a nice, you know, metal or, or ceramic or whatever. It's going to last. And, you know, or if it isn't going to last, is it, you know, ceramics, a good example of something that just goes right back in the ground. It's not a big deal. Right. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I love, I love that you mentioned that um, in terms of buying something of quality too, because I think, yeah, it's very easy to get caught up and, you know, just buy something sustainable and let me get rid of my stuff that I have that, was made dirty, but is still in fine condition to buy something brand new. And there's still that cost to it. So it's like make, and if you're going to buy something, make it last as long as possible. Um, and I think that's, that's such a valuable piece of information. The other thing I'm, I'm kind of been spending a lot of time on, right? So I, like one of the thoughts I had in the last couple of days was like, you know, we have, we got lucky enough to, to, you know, buy this building downtown Santa Cruz um, and then fill it with a bunch of brand new, super cool office furniture for our staff, like really like high end, nice stuff. And I'm going back, like our conference table is just like big white conference table. And I've been like desperately wanting to go and get like a live edge redwood slab. That's the cop, you know, conference table. Mm -hmm. I want that in there. Yeah. With the, with the glass in the middle and the blue and the, yeah. And, and, uh, and it made me realize, and what's cool is I can sell my current table into the used market. Like I know the company that'll buy it from me and go sell it to a startup that doesn't want to buy new furniture. It's a perfectly good, brand new, barely used table, right? But what it reminded me of is, dude, how much more valuable, we're talking about buying stuff that lasts, how much more valuable is the stuff that you buy that some guy, some gal made locally with their own hands in their own shop, like up the road with lumber that was milled, like you know, 10 miles away. Like you, I think buying local is almost paramount, like locally made because it kind of checks a lot of the other boxes. If you can focus on buying local. Now we're lucky to live in a pretty rich environment here in Santa Cruz. You are in Boulder, same thing. Mm -hmm. Not everybody has that, but the idea is still the same. Like focus local because local tends to be more sustainable. And even if it isn't a sustainable material, it traveled way less to get to you. That probably makes up for the fact that it's not, you can buy sustainable and it's, from some far away from India, well, add up all that cost to get it here and mm -hmm. maybe buying a not so sustainable item that was made here locally, it might be just as good. So I like to focus local more than anything because I like pumping right back into my own. I want to put money in the pockets of the families that I know, you know, and their mm -hmm. friends and their families and then on and on. Right. So that's a bit, and I that's, think it's a key aspect. And that's building a community. Like that's what community is all about. Um, I think we've lost touch with our local community um, and how powerful that is. So where would be, um, I, I think I know the answer to this question, but um, where would be the favorite place that you like to enjoy nature? <laughs> well, jeez, um, oh, the simple answer probably is, well, I'll tell you for sure, the for sure answer. You know, I, I dreamed my whole life of someday being able to own some acreage, you know, and little did I know, I actually, you know, started cultivating a dream you know, 15 years ago about being up in the Santa Cruz mountains. 
And, you know, we, we have 11 acres up by the mystery spot, uh, up Brant's 40 in, in the Santa Cruz mountains. Uh, and it's dude, it's like, you know, 10 minutes to my office, but when you're up there, you're in the redwoods and there's freaking wild turkeys running around and there's, you know, <laughs> uh, coyotes howling at night and, you know, all kinds of just, you know, it's just bananas up there. Well, it, to develop a, a piece of property is, is crazy, right? So we have 11 acres. Most of it's totally unbuildable. And we have like three that are kind of like where our house is and like kind of our front and backyard. But it's we There's like a mountain. Like you can climb right up this mountain and see across the bay. Um, and it's, you know, sided by redwood groves on either side. But it took a while for my wife to build her dream, which is this garden out in the yard. You just don't import soil. You don't till. Yep. You just, Yeah, you just replenish with cover crop and all that. And mm -hmm. so she has that garden going out there. It's her baby, right? And so there's these two Adirondack chairs that sit out there with a table in between. And it's like probably three or four times a week that she and I just leave the kids in the house watching TV, whatever they're doing. And we just go sit out in that garden and look out over the, you know, the property and the redwood trees and the birds are chirping and the wild turkeys walking by every once in a while a deer shows up and we just sit out there and, and just, and, and hardly talk at all. We just sit and enjoy each other's company. Sometimes she's gardening and I'm just watching. And, um, you know, and that to me has become one of my favorite places on earth, period. Um, that being said, very close second is the Guanacaste coast of, of Costa Rica. We, mm -hmm. used to, we used to go down there a lot more than we do now. And we, we actually owned a house down there at one point, a little, little place called Playa Flamingo, just north of Tamarindo. And it's one of the most culturally rich places I've ever been. And it's obviously one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. And it's just, there's something about it. When I'm there, I just feel like I'm on another planet, another world, forget about everything. It's just, you're really in the moment. That's second for sure. Wow. That's incredible. I, and where your home's at, my grandparents were, um, they always lived off of Glen Canyon. So instead of a mystery spot, you just go left. And they were, you know, about mile, mile up. Probably one of my favorite roads in the whole county. Oh, it's the best. Oh, it's amazing. Like the Redwood Canyon. And then you're up in the, when you get up to that little bit, like more where it opens up, I mean, it's some of the coolest, that is one of the only other spots I think I'd live is right up yeah. there. Like where you get to some of those like kind of ranch houses, like up on the top, you know? Yep. Yep. Where yep. It opens up like, oh dude, I love it up there. Yeah. How can people get in touch with Mint, you learn more about what you guys do, um, get involved, have questions. Uh, we just recently built a new website that I think is a little bit more informative than the, the original one was. Um, and you can simply just go to mintsystems.com. The hard part of that is mint is spelled with a Y. So M-Y-N-T-S-Y-S-T-E-M-S.com. Um, if you own or invest in commercial real estate, again, kind of going back to what was mentioned earlier in this uh, podcast, um, you're, you're currently in the energy game and, and you just don't know, may not know it yet. Uh, we can help with that. Um, you know, everything you heard today is, is, is really a big part of how you can be not only improving your yield on your investment, but also doing the right thing for the planet and for your community. Um, we love to partner with, with real estate developers, investors, owners, um, asset managers that are interested in that. Um, we don't want to partner with everybody. It's got to be the right mindset. So if you've heard anything here today that makes sense for you, this is that Give us, give us a, a look. You, you know, certainly you can hit us on the info, you know, inbox at, at the, the uh, that's on the website or look us up on the web uh, otherwise. So, yeah, I mean, look, we, we really, really are passionate about what we do and we really appreciate you doing a podcast like this and giving us the opportunity to talk about this. You know, it's, it's a sophisticated set of 
uh, data and, and problems that you know, are kind of all converging here. And so I think it takes, um, and this is what I love about podcasting, like I've already mentioned today, it takes a, a, a platform like this to be able to explain things because it's so nuanced. Like you'll go to our website, it's gonna tell some of the story, but it's, there's no way to tell the whole story. So mm-hmm. thank you very much, um, Steve, for doing that for us. Like, you know, we, we love being here. You're a fantastic host, by the way. Your questions are, thank you. are, are definitely off. They're kind of like, there's the straight up, you know, um, 12 o'clock kind of questions that you'd expect. And you're like, you're kind of pinging between like, you know, 11 and one, you know, or two, you know, you're kind of taking us to just slightly different where it was kind of throwing me some curveballs. It's great. So um, yeah. And by the way, anybody listening that wants to kind of, um, we also act as a consultant. We can act as an owner's rep. We can just kind of, t- we're happy at any point to help just talk. We don't need to be paid. We want to carry the message. We want to do good work. Um, ultimately, again, we're about proof of concept. We're trying to show the world what's possible happen to be kind of in an, the right environment to make that happen. And, and that'll become more readily available uh, worldwide. Uh, so if you just want to talk and, a- and ask some questions, we're here to help. Nice. Thank you for the kind words, definitely. Um, but also, thank you so much for just being a part of the show. It's It's been incredible to have you on it. Talk about energy in such like a very, very deep way um, that I think a lot of people don't look at. I mean, what you guys are doing is it's in a category and in an area that most people don't think about at all, but the impact that you guys are having already and the future impact that you guys are going to have is, I think it's going to be something that's experienced by every single person in their home, in their business, in their job. I mean, that it's almost that, you know, people didn't think Amazon was going to be something when they were just a bookstore, right? And it's like, you guys are helping with some renovations of, of buildings, if you will, but you guys are doing so much more than that you know, the bigger picture of what you guys are doing. So thank you so much for all of this. You bet, man. It's the transformation of commercial industrial real estate. That's the idea, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the high performing energy assets. Like that's really yeah. what's going on. Yeah. So yeah. Nice. Thanks so much. We, we, I really had a great time. Appreciate it. Um, and uh, look forward to continue the, the discussions with you because you're, you're a fascinating dude. And I love to hear more about what you're up to. So uh, thanks again for the time today. This was a ton of fun. Thanks to Derek for being a part of this podcast. I know that we went deep into some of these concepts, but I love that we explored this idea of paradigm shifting. Derek and Mint Systems is doing just that in a way that will have a massive impact on the way that we live our lives. All of the details will be in the show notes to reach out to Mint and Derek and to learn more. I highly suggest you research more about what Mint does. Look a little bit about Derek's story. He's an incredible founder and all around just genuine person. Um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. And thanks again for listening to this episode of Sustainable Goat.